Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Sentinel node biopsy has quickly become a standard of care in local management of breast cancer, and I met with Dr. Pat Whitworth for an update on where we are with this strategy and other new developments in the field. To begin, Dr. Whitworth discussed some of the recent practical clinical advances he's observed with the sentinel node technique. I think in a lot of cases, things are much better now than they were when we started out. From a very practical point of view, I think it's clear that intradermal injection of the isotope is superior to intraparenchymal injection. Now, this is with regard to identifying the axillary sentinel nodes. If you're going to be looking for other sentinel nodes in non-axillary locations, then you're probably going to have to inject intraparenchymally. But right now, that's not standard. And so intradermal injection of the isotope is a huge advantage in terms of identifying the sentinel nodes. And that can be intradermal injection directly over the tumor, which is done in some places, or perhaps at the areolar border, which is done at other places. We use a local anesthetic patch that the patient puts on at home before she comes in. It's lidocaine-type patch, and it needs to be on there for a couple of hours. You can't just put it on at the hospital. It really doesn't help much. We also give women a sublingual Valium after they've signed their permits because some will report that the isotope injection is the most painful thing they went through in the entire treatment of their breast cancer. When we do these things with the little local anesthetic and uh, patch on the skin and the sublingual Valium, they don't report that nearly as often. So that's a little practical benefit. We also inject now the blue dye in a subareolar location. For a long time, we had put the blue dye right around the tumor, and we would you know, make sure that the isotope and the blue dye went to the same place. I think we're all convinced that that happens now in the vast, vast majority of cases. So we put the blue dye in a subareolar location, and we've stopped using, in our practice, we've stopped using lymphazera. There are some rare reactions to it. Now there are shortages of it, and we don't think it's necessary. We use a diluted methylene blue two cc's of methylene blue with three cc's of saline instead, and it works very well. If you use methylene blue without diluting it, you can get some bad skin reactions, and so we've found that we get just as good a performance with that diluted solution. How do you approach the patient who's going to get neoadjuvant therapy, particularly a patient with a larger tumor? I think right now most people will do a sentinel node procedure prior to the neoadjuvant therapy. We're most comfortable with that. It gives us all the information we used to get, and a lot of people value that information, especially radiation therapists. You know, if we have a patient who's going to have a mastectomy, sometimes patients are given radiation therapy after mastectomy if they have four positive lymph nodes. So it really doesn't make a big difference if the patient is a locally advanced patient who's going to get radiation therapy anyway. But if you have some patient with perhaps a small breast and a lesion that would force a mastectomy, but it's not considered a locally advanced lesion, it's not greater than five centimeters, then it really might make a difference to know this four positive node thing. I think we're going to see, I'm going to begin advocating the position that it may be friendlier to the patient to do sentinel node staging after neoadjuvant therapy. There is an accumulating body of data that shows that the accuracy is very similar to patients who haven't been treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, saves the patient an obligatory extra operation. And I think now that we are developing the ability to predict bad behavior from a molecular assay point of view, that four positive nodes issue may be less of an important factor. What about sentinel node and DCIS? We don't do sentinel node staging in DCIS patients who are having breast conservation. 
but we do it routinely in patients who are having a mastectomy since we feel like we're burning that bridge to go back and just look at a sentinel node if you get that occult invasive cancer in those DCIS mastectomy patients. Let's talk a little bit about cryo. Can you kind of provide an update of where we are in terms of specifically cryo for breast cancer, but also in terms of benign conditions? Well, for breast cancer, the ACASOG is really working hard on a phase two trial. We have been to the NCI with a phase two trial once. Rasha Simmons has been the PI on that trial. Rasha and Kelly Hunt, who's the chair of the committee, have worked very hard to get this thing up and going. And the NCI had some reservations about the importance of cryoablation. Why is it a big deal to be able to treat a tumor in situ? Why can't you do a lumpectomy? And, you know, we had to spend a little time trying to convince them that, well, same reason lumpectomy is better than mastectomy, and it's not everybody. It's smaller tumors. We just want to give people less morbidity if we can do that. There was a lot of statistical back and forth, so we are going to represent that trial and hopefully get it up and going. Right now, we have data that shows us that you can certainly destroy a given area of tissue with cryoablation, other technologies too. And the problem is cancers tend to be irregular, and if a cancer's histology is not picked up by whatever imaging modality you're using, if you know a cancer is invisible, a little thread of DCIS cells is invisible to ultrasound, that's going to cause a problem. So our initial approach with the ACASOG trial was to say we need to validate an assay after cryoablation that tells us we've succeeded. And we really had a lot of optimism about using MRI after cryoablation to tell us was there or was there not residual disease. More and more information has come out about that particular application for MRI, and it looks like it's not going to be very helpful to us in terms of detecting residual disease. I think it's going to be very helpful to us in selecting patients, though. And it may be the case that we don't end up with a perfect assay to use after cryoablation to detect residual disease. And instead, we have to do a near-perfect job of selecting the proper patients up front. After cryoablation, MR is very fuzzy because of inflammatory changes. Before cryoablation, without disturbing those tissues, you're going to get a lot more information. One series showed the ability to detect disease after cryoablation was gone for MR, physical exam, ultrasound, mammogram, because of the disturbed tissue, but that scintimammography could detect disease in some cases. So the recent development of positron emission mammography may help us there. But right now, my belief, and I think the belief that is held by Kelly and Rasha, is that we need to do this really good job up front, selecting patients with MR, and use that as our approach if we're going to try to apply this in the phase two setting and then move to the phase three setting. How much of an advantage do you think cryo really poses? I think it's pretty clear that we do a good job overall with lumpectomy. We get good cosmesis, good to excellent cosmesis in about 85% of patients, but there are 15% that we don't do that well with. It's not always the bigger tumors. It has a lot to do with the patient's breast size and their age and how that particular patient heals. So I think the notion of better targeting the disease and treating less tissue is going to help us in some patients. There are other strategies that we're working on too. We're right now conducting a trial using a device that takes a much larger tissue sample as a biopsy, but that technology may be adapted to treating small cancers. And like the notion of better targeting, removing less tissue, no matter what. How much of a cosmetic advantage do you think it is? Well, it's going to vary from patient to patient. When we've looked at the cosmetic outcome from cryoablation of fibroadenomas, 
you can't tell anything's happened to that breast. In a lot of cases, you could say the same thing about our lumpectomy patients. So it's not the worst problem in the world. On the other hand, there are a fair number of our lumpectomy patients, because a lot of women have that operation, who have a cosmetic change in the breast, who wish they didn't, and you know certainly the surgeon wishes they didn't too. What's new in terms of the technical procedures itself? Well, the FDA approved the cryoablation technology a few years ago, and so not a lot different there. The wand or probe is very small now, very thin. Some advances have been made, though. In the original probes, we had a four-centimeter freezing zone, and that's more than you need in some cases. And so now there are probes with three-centimeter freezing zones. And I think we're more and more learning to tailor the size of the ice ball we're creating to the individual tumor and sort of instead of having a kind of rigid protocol because that ice ball grows a little faster or a little slower in some patients. Now, are you using the procedure yourself for breast cancer? We are using it for fibroadenomas, and we're only investigating it for breast cancer. And right now, we don't have an open investigation, so we're not using it in our breast cancer patients presently. You mentioned the NSABP B39 trial of partial breast irradiation. Can you talk a little bit about what that study is looking at and sort of where things are right now in terms of PBI? Yeah, it's been very interesting because the American Society of Breast Surgeons, which I'm involved with, developed criteria, developed a consensus set of recommendations for who might now, off protocol, have partial breast irradiation. And it was very controversial because many of my very good friends in academics and in other areas took a fairly academic view of that and said, no, until we have randomized trials, no patient anywhere should be treated outside of a randomized trial, which really kind of denied access to some patients. And ultimately, even the NCI said patients who are being consented for B39 have to be told that they could get this treatment off trial, otherwise it's coercive. So that was one thing that came along. But the most interesting thing about the whole study is that those of us who are using partial breast irradiation off protocol in some cases or on protocol really want to know, can it be used in patients with positive nodes? Can it be used in patients who are at higher risk? Can it be used in younger patients? What about with lobular cancers? And that's the real question. These sort of highly selected patients that we've seen five-year data with partial breast radiation were just that, highly selected. And that's where our consensus recommendations were. For some very low-risk patients, this appears to be a very acceptable approach. But what was happening with B39 was all of these low-risk patients were going into B39. And once the event rates started to, you know, once we started to have enough time to look at event rates, it was clear they were going to have to add a lot more patients. And it was going to take, instead of 9 or 10 years, 11 years, because the event rates are really low here. So very recently, the NSABP and the RTOG got together and said, you know what, we're not going to accrue any more patients who are over 50 with estrogen receptor positive node negative breast cancers. We've got to keep these super low risk patients out of here or it's going to take longer. We're going to have to accrue more patients. It's going to cost a lot more money. So now there's a very good overlap between the patients who no longer have access to B39 and no longer are accrued to B39 between those patients and the patients we've recommended are reasonable patients for partial breast. I was getting worried about that study because if we got to the end of it and the conclusion said, well, there's no difference between partial breast and whole breast radiation in these patients, but then we didn't have anybody with positive nodes, what conclusions, how are we going to use that? So I'm more excited now. I really have a lot of optimism that we'll have some of those higher risk patients in there and really be able to draw conclusions. For my money, I'm going to be very surprised if there's any difference. And the reason is, if you look at the trial that got us doing whole breast radiation in the first place, BO6, 
the difference that radiation caused, in other words, there was a group of patients who had no radiation, a group of patients who had radiation, the local recurrence risk went from around 40% down to about 15%, a big change with radiation therapy. But that only happened in the quadrant where the original tumor was, only there. In the elsewhere quadrants, there was absolutely no difference. In fact, there's a little higher recurrence rate in the elsewhere quadrants in patients who got radiation therapy. So, you know, the effect, the benefit is right there in that quadrant. What's your preferred method of using PBI? I guess in the B39 study, they allow brachytherapy, external beam conformal, as well as the mamocyte. What do you use? Well, my good friend Frank Vincini is a PI on that trial, and he has pioneered a number of those things, at least at William Beaumont. He's really done a lot of work to figure out the best way to do each of those approaches. Dr. Kusky has also worked very hard with the multi-catheter approach. And so I think if you talk to a person who knows more about this than I do, a radiation therapist, they'll tell you it depends on the patient. Some cases you need a multi-catheter approach if you're going to pull this off. Some patients you'll be better off with a balloon and some patients 3D conformal. You know, if all things are equal, I do like the balloon approach. I'd rather have it happen intraoperatively and not have to have anything going on afterwards, but it's only five days right now. I like the balloon approach because it irradiates a lot less breast tissue than the 3D conformal. The 3D conformal, there's a recent study that suggests you may have a little more cardiac toxicity with 3D conformal than you have with whole breast, with conventional whole breast. I don't know that that's really true. I certainly wouldn't say that that's a real conclusion, but I do know that you irradiate a lot of breast tissue, a good bit more breast tissue with the 3D conformal approach than you do with the balloon approach or the multi-catheter approach. The studies that have been done that show how much target volume gets the dose, the target dose, show superiority for the balloon approach, mainly because it's just held in place, in a fixed place. Breathing has no effect on that. And so the target dose is delivered more uniformly in that than even in some of the multi-catheter analyses that have been done. If it does turn out that this is an acceptable approach, and it's too bad we're going to take so long to find out, how much of an advantage do you think this is going to pose to women? It's a big advantage. And what we were shocked to find in the ACOSOG trials, and anytime you look at this, women don't get the radiation therapy in a pretty big percentage of cases. It is really surprising. It looks like about 15% maybe. And even in the ACOSOG trial, the Z10 trial. It was a protocol violation not to get your radiation therapy, and the patients, it looks like maybe 15% didn't get it. So if you look at a map of who gets the radiation therapy and who doesn't, it's almost linear. The farther they live away from the facility, the more likely they are to not get it. And once you get to 50 miles or so, it really gets low. So this five-day thing is really helpful to a lot of women. The other thing that makes it more practical for some women that really do live far away is many cities now, the American Cancer Society or another group has put together a little place where people can stay for a few days. And so this is ideal for that. So do you think that if this plays out positively, that maybe there be more women who are going to get breast conservation? Yes, I think so. There are women in my practice who have said, you know, I just don't want to go through that whole six weeks of back and forth. It's too much travel. My family has to bring me, and I just don't want to ask them to do that. So a few women do make the decision up front. That's just going to be too difficult. It's not a huge number, I don't think. I do think, though, that of the women who have breast conservation, we will probably do a better job of delivering the radiation therapy they're supposed to get. You mentioned intraoperative radiation therapy. Where are we with that, and where do you think it's heading? 
There are a number of series. The Italian series are the largest. I don't think we have the follow-up data yet. It's a great idea. Right now, it's quite cumbersome. People are doing very good work to study it, but I don't think it's ready for prime time. It won't play in Peoria because it's just too cumbersome and complicated right now. But everything we've ever done has started out that way and has gotten better and easier, and it is very possible we could end up with an intraoperative treatment, but it's several years from here. I want to track out some of the common questions you receive from surgeons in practice about breast cancer management. And one I know you must get all the time is the whole issue of margins, both with DCIS as well as invasive disease. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, we hate not getting a hard and fast rule for things. We'd like to get a good solid rule. But the problem that happens with margins and trying to figure out what's the right margin has to do with pathology. We have some great pathologists in this country. I know some very good pathologists, but there are limitations there. If you were really going to look at all the tissue, it would take you a week to do one case. They just cannot possibly look at that many slides for a given case. And so pathology, surgeons hate to hear this and people hate to think about it, is a sampling event. And so we know what's going to happen given good conventional pathology right now. We know what to expect in terms of outcomes. But when people have studied this, it's just been fascinating. Frank Vincini's group did a study where they had patients who had had a lumpectomy and had negative margins. The patients had negative margins. And they were re-excised. And I think this may have been part of one of their partial breast radiation series. They wanted more margin or something like that. I can't recall that part of it. But Frank's group re-excised a large number of patients. I think it was about 130-something patients who had negative margins by NSABP standards. About, it's somewhere in the 35 to 40% range, had more disease found when they went back and re-excised them. And these are patients you know, we would look at in BO6, there are negative margins. And it's not because bad surgeons took care of them. It's not because NSABP margins are wrong. It's because pathology is a sampling event. And so the way it's done right now, that's sort of what you can expect. And for people who are out there saying, well, if they just gotten two millimeter margins, that wouldn't happen. They're wrong. The extra disease was found up to 10 millimeters away. And in fact, fortunately, and I think Mel Silverstein probably loves this, if you went 10 millimeters out, you would have gotten 95% of that residual disease taken care of. And so that's why, you know, we do breast radiation therapy, even though we have negative margins. It's why we do partial breast or whole breast radiation therapy. So if you said two millimeters, you're still going to get a similar result. It might be 30% residual disease, but it's not nothing. So in our practice, we like to see a margin bigger than a millimeter. And we look for that and we use that rule, even though we know there's going to be some residual disease. If we went back and re-excised all those people, we'd see it. But that's why we do radiation therapy. And we know it works pretty well. And that's kind of where we are right now. The near future, I think, is a little more exciting in terms of analyzing sentinel nodes. Because sentinel nodes, it's the same thing. It's a sampling event. And the closer you look, the more disease you find. It's just impractical to look that much. And the other question is, what is the threshold where a certain amount of disease becomes really meaningful clinically? It changes the patient's outcome. And so there are assays. One just went to the FDA and got a favorable vote from the panel, which look at the sentinel nodes from a molecular standpoint. You take the node, you homogenize a portion of it, and you get a look at it, essentially every cell there in that way. And I think our ability to accurately analyze those things is going to be much better. That's fascinating. Is that test specifically for sentinel nodes? Yes. Well, it tests for epithelial antigens in the sentinel hmm. nodes, but 
or epithelial markers in the sentinel nodes, but it is very accurate. The difficulty with it was that you have to have some gold standard. So the gold standard was sampling type pathology. And we took in the study, we took alternate slices of each lymph node, and one slice got put through the assay and could be frozen. We didn't just throw it away. So there is some holding on to that. But the other slice, the next alternate slice, went to conventional pathology. And what we found was that you could have a situation where the conventional pathology didn't find anything. And so that case or that node was called negative, but the assay did find something. And it really threw the panel for a loop because they were saying, is that a false positive? If your reference is negative and your assay is positive, that's a false positive. And we had to make the case that that's not a false positive. That's a problem with the reference. Wow. Interesting. What about margins in DCIS? And in what situations do you withhold or not recommend radiation therapy? In general, if we have an older patient who has a very wide margin, we would really consider omitting radiation therapy. We are using partial breast radiation therapy in some of those cases where we would be clinically on the fence. I mean, in general, we want to give radiation therapy to patients who've had breast conservation. But some very good work has been done. A couple of different groups in the last couple of years have shown that while radiation therapy has a benefit in women over 70 with small, low-risk tumors, it's not big. In other words, you can give radiation therapy and get a 1% local recurrence risk, or you can omit it and get a 4% local recurrence risk. So I think there's a lot to be said for individualizing the decision in women over 70 with low-risk tumors. I'm curious about the Oncotype DX assay and how you see it fitting into clinical practice now and evolving for the future. To me, it's really one of the most exciting things that's happened in a long time. Surgeons for years, and not just surgeons, other oncologists, have wanted a way of deciding which patient really will benefit from systemic adjuvant chemotherapy. And we've all been frustrated because we know that even in cases that are fairly clear-cut by standard guidelines, just take a woman who is 40, 42, and she's got a 15-millimeter tumor, ER-positive, node-negative, most people are going to say she needs systemic adjuvant chemotherapy. Yet we know if you look at the numbers, what that means is if you treat 100 women, maybe six will have their life saved by that chemotherapy. You treated a whole bunch of women who didn't need it. You just couldn't see who did and who didn't. So that genomic assay is now allowing us to identify that pretty big group of women. It's about half the women, if you consider the current guidelines, who have such a good prognosis that they don't need systemic adjuvant chemotherapy. So it's very exciting in terms of less misery for our patients. Yes, the other thing, too, is it, it seems like it also has the potential to identify people who maybe you wouldn't have given or the oncologist wouldn't have given chemotherapy to, and now it's something that just to look at the tumor size or whatever, maybe not that concerning, and then you see a high recurrence score. Exactly. I mean, we're all frustrated. In fact, that patient is kind of one of the patients that keeps us going and unsure and treating people who might not benefit and it's sort of like putting on glasses that allow you to see something you couldn't see before. You see not only the patients who don't need it, but you do see that patient who by classic criteria or conventional criteria wouldn't get treated and you'd miss. Are you involved in any way with the Taylor X study? Yes, we are at the Nashville Breast Center are putting patients on that study. Very excited about it for practical reasons and scientific reasons. We really love that study for our patients. I guess the thing that's interesting about that study is the patients get the oncotype, 
And I guess one thing that's interesting is that if they have a low recurrence score, they don't get chemo. If they have a high recurrence score, they do get chemo. And then if they have the intermediate, they get randomized to chemo or not. Mm-hmm. And I guess a couple of things that are interesting is that, one, it seems like kind of the trial design itself seems to be an acceptance that the results mean something. Oh, I, it is. It is very much so. The validation that the NSABP took that data through, I think that level of evidence is higher than the level of evidence we have for many of the things we do in medicine. Have you been involved at all with the ACASOG study on neoadjuvant aromatase inhibitors? That, yeah, we are very excited about that that's study. That's really an interesting study. Can you talk about that? We think that surgeons are going to be more and more involved in this kind of clinical research where you get a little earlier answer than just simply following people for 5, 10, 15 years. Those studies are needed, but we're learning a lot about biological agents and biological effects, and so it's critical, I think, for surgeons to be involved in neoadjuvant trials where you can have a biopsy, a tissue analysis of the lesion prior to some intervention, whether it's an aromatase inhibitor or something else, and then take the tumor out and see what the biological effects have been. And it's also practical importance because now we're identifying patients in whom we think hormonal neoadjuvant therapy is going to be much more appropriate than neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And generally, those are estrogen receptor positive postmenopausal women. And if you look at the information from some of the studies done with the 21 gene assay, it looks like there's a real different set of patients there, patients who have a low likelihood of a great response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy seem to also be the patients who have a better likelihood of benefit from hormonal therapy. So we are expecting to improve the breast conservation rate with neoadjuvant hormonal therapy in that series. And really that series is to set up a much larger study to compare neoadjuvant hormonal therapy with neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the future. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating that in a sense this was the first of two steps. And I guess this one's looking at the three AIs, exemestane, anastrozole, and letrozole, to see if there's an advantage of one versus the other. And then, as you say, fascinatingly, the next step is going to be to compare the best of those three, or maybe all three of them, if they're the same, to chemo, Mm -hmm. which I guess is obviously much more commonly utilized in this country. Have you had patients actually on the study? Oh, yes. We have patients on neoadjuvant hormonal trials. We have the trial open at the Nashville Breast Center. What have you observed in terms of how people tolerate it and what kind of responses you see? Mike Dixon in the UK tells us that these women of estrogen receptor, 80% of them should have responses. I mean, obviously, you just have a few people. What have you seen? We have seen good responses, you know, and Matt Ellis has done a lot in this country to convince us that women will accept this. And in fact, women like it. Now, it's not every woman. What we learn every day in our practice is that women are different one from the other. But the patients we have put on neoadjuvant hormonal therapy have really been happy with it, and we've been happy with it. There's some anxiety at first about, is that okay? Could a metastasis happen in this short period of time where we're using it? And it's very statistically unlikely, of course. In fact, most patients respond. And in fact, we do expect to see the confirmation of better breast conservation. That's interesting. What's your take been in general of the aromatase inhibitors in postmenopausal women? There's obviously been a major shift in that direction away from tamoxifen. What do you observe in terms of quality of life in the women on the AIs compared to tamoxifen? It's hard to compare the tamoxifen to the AIs in our patients, but you know, in the series that are out there, you get very similar quality of life type side effects 
In some cases, one seems better than the other. But we often end up switching from one to another to another because some women have a little more of an idiosyncratic difficulty with leg cramps or joint pain or muscle pain on one and perhaps a little less on the other. But we're still up against that. There are women who go off of the treatment because it's just causing them some difficulty. It is nice to have some alternatives, though.